carbon footprinting reportedly grew out of the concept of the ecological footprint, invented in the early 1990s by Canadian ecologist William Rees and Swiss-born regional planner Matthias Wackernagel at the University of British Columbia. Carbon footprinting is only becoming more important, particularly with countries like New Zealand and the UK, creating zero carbon acts to limit the global average temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and to allow us to adapt to the effects of climate change. You can create a carbon footprint for a business, activity, or product. But what about cities? What if you wanted to do a carbon footprint of an entire sector, like transport, or carbon footprint, a building? Where would you start? Hi, and welcome to Moonshot City. I'm Juhi Sharif, and I'm here with Preeti Ambani, and together we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city. ThinkStep ANZ are one of the leading companies in carbon strategies and footprinting, life cycle assessment, and environmental product declarations, and now cradle-to-cradle assessment and circular economy strategies. Many of our listeners will probably know how to do a carbon footprint, but we're going to be covering a key concept today, embodied carbon. So today we're delighted to be talking to two experts in carbon footprinting from the sustainability consultancy ThinkStep ANZ, not to be confused with ThinkStep in Europe. A big welcome to CEO Barbara Nebel and Technical Director Jeff Vickers. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Joey and Pretty. Barbara and Jeff, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Moonshot City. So can you tell us a bit about ThinkStep, Barbara? Well, thank you, Juhi. At ThinkStep, we enable organizations to succeed sustainably. We do that by developing sustainability strategies. We deliver roadmaps, but also do detailed carbon footprinting and lifecycle assessment studies in light of a circular economy. Our projects always deliver tangible business value. And I often describe my role as that of a translator, translating traditional sustainability language into language that is spoken around the board table. We are a growing team of close to 25 experts in New Zealand and Australia. We are in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington, Christchurch, Sydney and Perth. Thank you, Barbara. Um, Hi, Jeff. It's great to meet you both. Um, This is a a fascinating topic and uh, really close to the work I've done uh, during my master's in environmental science. So I'm really interested to learn more from both of you. Could you explain for our listeners the difference between a carbon footprint and life cycle assessment, commonly known as LCA? Jeff? A life cycle assessment is a study that looks at the environmental footprint of a product across a range of different environmental indicators. So it might include a carbon footprint, a water footprint. It might look at other environmental indicators like eutrophication or acidification, toxicity, a whole range of different indicators. And it looks at across the full life cycle of a product, looking from cradle to grave or cradle to cradle, depending on your perspective, looking at the production, extraction of raw materials, manufacturing into you know parts, semi-finished products into the final product, getting it to the customer where it's used, transported, and eventually going to end of life, which may be recycling again or reuse again, or perhaps landfill or incineration. And so a carbon footprint is effectively a subset of life cycle assessment. 
It's a single indicator study using the same methodology, that full life cycle approach, but just really focused in on the carbon aspect of it. So Barbara, since when has product carbon footprinting been a focus in New Zealand? And how mature are we in New Zealand compared to Europe, for instance? Well, let's talk about the full concept of life cycle assessment, which has been around globally for 50 years. And as part of that carbon footprinting, as Jeff has explained before, in New Zealand, life cycle assessment and also carbon footprinting has really started to take off about 15 years ago. And 10 years ago, there was a big push on doing product carbon footprinting because of the whole food miles discussion. Because in Europe, people were concerned about having goods that have been transported all around the world and having a big carbon footprint. And that is really when carbon footprinting took off in New Zealand. What is quite important, though, is that it was really good for New Zealand that it took off because it helped to understand that we need to look at the full life cycle of our products and not only at transport. And that exactly is what life cycle thinking and life cycle assessment is all about. One of the results of those early studies was, for example, that if we transport apples from New Zealand to the UK, they're actually a couple of months in the year where an apple transported all around the world would have a lower footprint than an apple grown in the UK. And that is when those apples would have been for about eight, nine months in a cool store, because we have opposite seasons, saving that cool store, but adding transport, ended up having a lower carbon footprint. So, I mean, that speaks to a real issue, Barbara, around communication. Do you feel that consumers are becoming more carbon literate around products? I definitely think so. I think consumers really start to understand what a carbon footprint is in the very early days when they printed on a packet of crisps in a UK supermarket, the carbon footprint, people were concerned about carbon being part of their crisps. Whereas if you would now print the carbon footprint of a product onto a packet, they would actually understand that it is the impact that product has on climate change. So why do you think that life cycle assessment is helpful if you're looking at a broader strategy, like, for example, a circular economy strategy? Well, because life cycle assessment provides you with data and it helps to make decisions. Because how else would you know whether or not recycled content in a product is a good idea? Or if we look at that good old question of plastic bags versus paper bags versus cotton bags, the life cycle assessment study would tell you that you would have to use a cotton bag over 130 times before it has a lower impact than a single-use plastic bag, for example. So LCA really helps to bust some common myth and to really provide fundamental information based on data to really make decisions. Barbara, on that topic, so some of the results of an LCA can be really counterintuitive. And I think that actually that this is quite a massive communications challenge. How do you 
genuinely communicate that in a world where, although people are becoming more carbon literate, it is still incredibly complex. Making those decisions about various sustainability trade-offs is a really challenging situation for an experienced consultant, let alone, you know, somebody who's just going to the supermarket. So what, what do you think needs to improve in terms of communication? Well, I think it is two things. One is we need to have podcasts like this to really explain the concept. But I think we cannot only rely on consumers having to make those decisions without good information. We also need to have organizations make the right decisions when they design products or when governments design policies. I think it is at that stage that life cycle assessment, life cycle thinking really needs to be taken into account. Barbara, you bring some really interesting insights around data and information and, you know, Juhi's point around we have too much information and there's a lot of data. There's lots of different myths. There's assumptions. There's these notions of what you think might be more environmentally sustainable versus what's not. You know, on the topic of data, what do you think are the big data challenges for New Zealand? It is often quoted as a barrier to do those life cycle assessment studies that we don't have data. And businesses always say, oh, we don't have the information, we don't have the data. Actually, they always have all of the information. They might just not find it directly. But when you think about all the inputs that are required, it's all the materials and the energy use. They have paid for all of that. So they would know the quantities. So a lack of data usually isn't the issue. What sometimes is the problem is that we are not really able to connect all those inputs with their environmental impact. For example, what is the real impact of a kilowatt hour of electricity in New Zealand? Electricity is an example where we actually know what the carbon footprint is, but for some of the imported materials, we don't know what those upstream emissions are. What are those imported emissions that are attached to a product that we use? And that is where databases come in. We are increasingly developing those. And a really good trend is that companies are starting to publish that information. So environmental product declarations, for example. I think that's um, really interesting that you bring that up because this journey from you know, a whole heap of data. And I'd love to bring Jeff in here to hear your thoughts, Jeff. The journey from data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom, you know, it's all about what do we make of that data? How do we convert that into structured information? How do we convert that structured information into knowledge and our systems understanding of what we're dealing with? And then ultimately into wisdom so that we actually understand what's going on and are able to take good decisions. What are your thoughts around this in terms of where are we on that that journey from data to wisdom? I think we're still somewhere towards the early stages, in my opinion. You know, we, we've focused on getting a lot of the data out there in the last few years. So environmental product declarations are a really good example of companies putting environmental footprint data into the public domain. There's not 
a huge number of them at the moment. There's dozens on the market, predominantly for building and construction products, but also for a range of other products like tissue paper and uh, and you know some consumer products. But if you look internationally, there's thousands upon thousands of these things available, and they're becoming increasingly requested by end customers, particularly in the business to business type world. And so I think we're we're getting further down the path of having enough data that we can start to build knowledge, you know, start to make decisions, make informed decisions. And if you look at things like green building rating tools, for example, and the way they've encouraged this kind of information, if you look at environmental product declarations specifically, they've given points just for having an EPD. And an EPD, it's a little bit like a nutrition label. It doesn't tell you if something's good or bad. It just tells you what it is, except instead of kilojoules of energy or grams of fat or, you know, how much sodium is in the product, it tells you the carbon footprint and the amount of embodied water, embodied energy, other things things that are that are relevant from an environmental perspective and it doesn't say that the product is good or bad it just tells you what it is and then increasingly when you've got more and more of that information you can use that to do say a whole building life cycle assessment because you're starting to build up the information for the individual materials you know we use this steel and this timber and these other you know insulation products and this glass and whatever it happens to be these concrete products and you start to sum that together and you get to a profile for the whole building and then you can start to make really informed decisions and so the points sort of systems within green building rating tools started by just giving credits just for having an environmental product declaration and they still give those points but increasingly it's how do you use that data to make informed decisions and normally that's at the building level or the project level where you're looking at okay we've got all these materials we can choose this that or the other way and if we do do that what implications does that have over the whole life of the building not just on what we do now but also the operational phase and end of life and looking at it from that circular economy perspective so i think it's the data is sort of there and increasingly there, and it's increasingly being put on the market. And then I think we're now starting to get to the point where we can use it effectively to make decisions in a kind of local context. Jeff, I'm really pleased that you're talking about how the data is becoming more freely available, because I think one of the concerns I had was that a lot of this information was locked up in um, proprietary databases that run-of-the-mill small businesses, say, couldn't really access if they wanted to know more about whatever it is product that they're making without having to you know start from scratch and go through the whole process themselves so it's good to hear that the information is becoming more freely available do you see then that these databases and i'm um thinking of like for example like gabby they are starting to create light versions where they are sharing data more freely yeah, so there are a range of different databases available on the global market. Some of them are freely available, like national databases and EPDs, the example I was just talking about, they are publicly available and increasingly integrated into other databases and tools. And so I think there is certainly an increase in publicly accessible information. And there are tools like some of the Gabi data that you referenced, for example, has been integrated into freely available data sets like the European Lifecycle Data System and things like that. So there's an increasing availability of, of good quality data out there on the market. And I think that certainly helps to provide a better platform for making comparisons and also providing data that's kind of going broader than just carbon footprinting, while being a really important environmental indicator, if we're taking our kind of life cycle assessment perspective, we typically would encourage considering multiple environmental indicators. And that's where things like yeah, environmental product declarations and life cycle assessment databases really do help to allow you to make those sort of uh, more informed decisions considering a range of different impacts. So Jeff and Barbara, in an earlier podcast episode, we spoke with Katya Hansen, who's one of the early practitioners in the cradle-to-cradle methodology. 
and who has worked on buildings as material banks initiative. Can you tell us a bit more about your work, footprinting commercial buildings? How do you go about that and what are your key learnings? So from a commercial building perspective, we tend to look at it at a range of different levels. So we either look at individual buildings where we're looking at all of the inputs that are going into them. So if you're in the initial construction phase, we're looking at the steel that's going in, the concrete that's being used, the timber, the you know insulation materials, plasterboard on the walls, you know all the glazing systems, cladding materials, etc. So looking at all the upstream supply chain that is sort of required to get the building to the point where it's initially constructed, looking at all the manufacturing that happens both locally and internationally and what the embodied energy, embodied carbon, embodied water, embodied, you know, you name it, is inside those materials. And then once it's kind of constructed, we sort of look out over the forecast life of that building and say, okay, well, what are the operational emissions? You know, how much energy is the building going to use in terms of electricity or natural gas for heating? How much water does it use? Um, What's required in terms of cleaning and maintenance over its full life? And then, you know, what materials need to be replaced or repaired, what products need to be replaced or repaired. And then finally, you know, when the building is demolished, what happens to the materials when you take them out again? And you can scale that kind of analysis up from single buildings to entire countries or a built environment of whole cities. And we've done that for a few reports we've released over the last couple of years. So we've looked at, okay, what would happen if we said, okay, New Zealand's building, you know, this many square meters of this type of building and that many square meters of, you know, another type of building. And what do those buildings look like? What types of materials do they typically use? And then if you kind of start to aggregate that up to the national level, what is the total sort of material flow that's moving through the economy of each key material type? What does that mean? And what is the total energy and water use of those buildings as well over their typical life? And what does that mean from a New Zealand perspective? And when we did that analysis and we scale it up to the whole country, you start to see that in actual fact, the embodied emissions in the New Zealand context are actually quite significant. Um, in many countries, the embodied emissions might be, say, 20% of the full life cycle emissions, with most of it being the use phase emissions, like burning natural gas for heating or electricity for cooling in summer or whatever it happens to be, lighting. But in the New Zealand context, because we've got a relatively clean electricity mix, we mostly use electricity for heating. That means that our use phase emissions, the operational part is smaller impact. And in the New Zealand context, the embodied emissions, the stuff you put in up front and through maintenance actually becomes about half of the impacts at a New Zealand level, looking at all buildings together. So Jeff, it's really good that you're talking about this. And I'm assuming most of our listeners will know what embodied emissions are. But maybe Barbara, would you just unpack that for listeners who are new to this concept of embodied carbon? Sure. When we talk about embodied carbon, we are not actually talking about the carbon physically embodied in a material, but about the carbon that has been emitted in producing that material. Another term that has recently been used a bit more is upfront carbon emissions. So if you want to look at the embodied emissions, for example, of a steel beam, it's all the carbon emissions related to creating it that starts by mining iron ore or collecting iron sand then the whole steel making process where we also need coke which has carbon emissions related to it so we have emissions from the process we need the energy to actually melt the iron ore or the iron sand so all those carbon emissions summed up and added to the transport emissions as well, is what we would call embodied carbon emissions of a certain product. 
Well, thank you very much for explaining that. I think that, you know, for people who are aware of embodied emissions, it can actually be quite overwhelming when you look around at just the amount of stuff that is in circulation. You know, what is really visible is plastic ending up in the oceans and or burning fuel and releasing carbon emissions. But actually that everything that we have in its manufacture, its transport, etc., has been generating these carbon emissions and has that embodied emissions. I think it's something that it's going to become increasingly important as people understand then the value of, uh, for example, moving to more circular business models. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I fully agree. And I think people have been aware of it for quite a while. I've mentioned the topic of food miles, for example, before, which are essentially part of the embodied emissions. So I think the awareness is there. People just need guidance on what to do about it and how to use basically carbon-conscious products. A circular economy approach, if you think about it first, always is about using less materials. But of course, there is a carbon component to that as well. Because if we use our materials more cleverly, then we also reduce the carbon emissions related to making all those materials. Absolutely. And just going back to Jeff's explanation earlier around embodied carbon of of buildings, something I think it's important to note is that the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment, MB, here in New Zealand, has just put out a proposal to regulate the embodied carbon of buildings in New Zealand. And so they've put out some information for public consultation with a deadline of 30th of September. So we're going to link to that in our blog if if anyone's interested in contributing to that discussion. And I absolutely welcome this. I think it's a really important step forward. But I do find it really surprising that in the entire consultation document, you know, they talk about reducing construction waste. And they don't mention circular economy in that context. I mean, they mention it once in the in the document. Whereas there was a report that the Sustainable Business Network put together with ATEED, the organization, saying that by incorporating a circular focus into procurement in the construction sector, it could have a combined potential economic value of $2.5 billion by 2030 for Auckland alone. So potentially there is also some real financial value in shifting our systems to more circular systems, so a carbon benefit as well as a circular economy benefit. Barbara, do you think that this is a good idea that MB is really starting to look at embodied carbon? I think looking at embodied carbon in buildings is really important because there has long been that idea that our buildings really emit most of the carbon during the use of the buildings by using energy for heating and lighting. What we have actually found is that in New Zealand, because our electricity mix is so green, about 50% of the carbon emissions of the built environment are related to the embodied carbon that is locked in. And only 50% is the use of the buildings. Whereas in other countries, you might find a ratio of 20% being embodied carbon and 80% being use phase. So here in New Zealand, we have a real opportunity to look at that embodied carbon to really reduce the carbon emissions of the built environment. I was just going to say that um, for individual buildings, you can still have that same 
picture that you have internationally that it might be say 20% of the impact is in the embodied emissions and 80% in the use phase but it really depends on the building and how it's heated and cooled and in the New Zealand context particularly when we consider our residential buildings you know not only do we have relatively clean um, electricity and mostly use electricity for heating rather than lots of natural gas or coal or other things but we also don't heat our buildings very well unfortunately and so in the residential context you know we're not heating really enough and so as a result we're actually using less energy it's nice and efficient from an uh, energy and carbon standpoint but not particularly good for public health and so you know we do have this situation where we are using not as much energy in the use phase and therefore have these high embodied emissions but the flip side of that is we're probably not using enough energy to heat residential built in winter for example. I'll just add one other thought to that and that is if we increase the amount of insulation of course we do two things we increase the amount of embodied carbon in the building and we potentially decrease the energy use, which again shifts importance towards the materials. So what materials should we be building here in New Zealand? I mean, so you guys have done some studies. I mean, is it is it all building wooden cities like they're, they're planning to do in Finland? That's a very tricky question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> our, in our experience, there is no single one right way. So we wouldn't necessarily encourage every building to be built in a certain format and say that they will have to be built the same. In our experience, in our opinion, I guess, it's about sectors working together to work through the supply chain to collectively decarbonize, to all work towards a common goal. In the end, you tend to need all building materials. You need concrete, you need steel, you need timber. You can substitute them to an extent, and yes, you can build timber high-rises and you can do other things, but the materials, they do have their own unique properties, and, and it's not just carbon footprint there's also you know noise transmission through floors for example which you have to consider and fire resistance and you know chemical and and insect resistance and all kinds of other things and so there's lots of different factors to consider and in our experience uh generally speaking you're going to use a combination of all materials you're not going to necessarily build you know roads out of timber anytime soon you might build some mid to high-rise buildings out of that and that might be appropriate in certain situations but in our view it's normally about encouraging all the sectors to sort of drive towards the same goal, which is decarbonisation and how they can achieve that and how they can support each other and work as part of a system. Because there's quite a bit more overlap between the sectors than you might kind of expect. You know, even in a timber frame building, you're using a lot of steel parts. You've got a concrete foundation. But even more than that, you know, you can use outputs that come from one sector in the next. So, for example, a key way to decarbonize concrete is to use something called ground granulated blast furnace slag, which comes from the steel sector. So it's a waste product of the steel sector making its way in as a cement replacement in concrete, which really significantly lowers the carbon footprint of that concrete. So there's a lot of interplay between the sectors and it's, you know, in our view, in our experience, often not that helpful just to say the solution is X it's usually more helpful to say, okay, how do we all work together to achieve a kind of common outcome, which might be decarbonisation? That's very interesting, Jeff, uh, that you say that. And I wonder if you have any thoughts around whether prefab construction materials or built in site, built on site materials, actually, is there a difference? Is, is one better than the other in your experience? The materials themselves are essentially the same, but the one key difference is that you can really reduce the amount of waste. 
So if you're designing prefab buildings and designing at kind of scale and using modular components, you can reduce the amount of waste on site and therefore the amount of lost material. Because one of the key areas where you do have sort of a significant carbon footprint is if you're purchasing a whole heap of material that you then waste through offcut, through overordering, through whatever it happens to be, you've got a lot of upstream embodied carbon emissions locked in that material that then gets wasted. And then you have to dispose of it and you can't necessarily recycle it or you know if you can recycle it, you're kind of using it in a way that's not its kind of most optimum use. And so I see the real advantage of prefab construction is helping to optimize. It's helping to really minimize the waste in producing the thing that you want and to also make it more modular and probably easy to disassemble and reuse and repurpose at end of life as well. So for me, that's one of the key kind of advantages. Another advantage, of course, is timeliness of delivery. You can turn prefab buildings around much quicker. So that certainly has an advantage in terms of meeting housing crises, for example, where you've got the right facilities to produce those buildings. Fantastic. Thank you, Barbara and Jeff, for speaking with us and sharing your insights and and thoughts. Yes, thank you. It's been fantastic having you guys on this podcast. And we're planning to have another podcast with you guys because we've got a lot more to discuss, like how you actually carbon footprint an entire sector like transport. So we'll leave that for next time. But it's been great having you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Visit us at projectmoonshot.city and on Twitter at moonshotcity where we'll be sharing definitions and key learnings on our blog. I'm Preeti Ambani. I'm Juhi Sharif. This is Moonshot City.